finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things. Uh, we read a comic book. Oh, and then we talk about the things that we read. We don't just read them. This isn't just like an ASMR reading, recording thing where we like flip pages into the microphone. We don't do that at all. No, we read things and we talk about them. I was going to say we could do that if we started Patreon. Sure, I guess. I don't. Would people be willing to pay for that? I don't know. I feel like you could get enough of that for free. Uh, so we're on the second episode of our new ongoing comic series. We're reading The Wicked and the Divine, uh, written by Karen Gillan. Kieran Gillan. I think I pronounced his name in a way that sounded like Karen in the previous episode of this. It's Kieran Gillen, uh, drawn by Jamie McKelvey, colored by Matthew Wilson, and uh, lettered by Clayton Cowles. So we read the second volume, Fandemonium, mm-hmm. which is issues 6 through 11. Yep. And it was came out in 2015. But it's set in 2014. But it's set in 2014. So that makes it historical fiction. Yeah. So... Um, do you want to give us sort of a quick overview of what happened in the first volume so people know the premise of what this series is about since it's so new? Sure. I mean, uh, so it's about this cycle of recurrence where gods are reborn on Earth to inspire mortals and they are reincarnated into human bodies. And then those people live for two years as the gods and then they die. And they're like... Mega celebrities and the whole comic is sort of about the idea of like celebrity and art and inspiration and stuff like that. And our protagonist is a 17 year old girl named Laura who is a super fan of the gods and she meets and sort of befriends Lucifer who's one of the reborn gods. Um, And basically right around the same time that Lucifer is uh, attacked by some potential assassins then taken to court and seemingly framed for exploding the head of the judge. And the previous volume was a lot about the mystery of who attacked and then framed Lucifer and then ended with Lucifer uh, losing hope, breaking out of jail, and then getting killed by Ananki, who's like the this old woman who's kind of the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? She's sort of like in char- the administrator of the gods. But that's a secret. No one knows that she did it. And the very last thing we see in the previous volume is Laura uh manifesting briefly some ele- some uh aspect of Lucifer's powers. So each of the gods has their own cult-like fan following and the entire assembly of gods is referred to as the pantheon. Yeah. So there's supposed to be 12 of them at any given time. Uh I think only 11 of them have been revealed at the point where this volume starts. Right. So this volume starts, volume six starts with Laura, who is, she feels that she may be the 12th God because she manifests a small miracle, as they call their powers, and she clicked a little flame from her fingers. It was just like Lucifer's go-to move was like clicking your fingers and using it to light a cigarette. 
So, do you want to give a synopsis of what happens in Volume 6? Uh, we sure. meet a lot of people in this entire, over the entire Volume 2. Refresh my memory to exactly how this one starts. They all start with a full page, which is the face of someone from this, the characters from the comic book. Yeah, that, those are the covers. All the covers are like... Uh, these, uh, you know, Jonathan Demi type sort of like extreme, not extreme, but these Jonathan Demi type like close ups with the character sort of looking down the barrel of the quote unquote camera, you know, or just looking at the viewer. Yeah. Okay. So it starts with uh, Laura is like still sort of processing the death of Lucifer. It's still like a media frenzy all the gods are being interviewed and saying various things and it's clear that no one really knows exactly what happened to lucifer but they're all varying degrees of okay with it and then uh laura has like this like kind of moment where she can't where that expresses that she can't like connect with her mom where she has like an internal monologue of all the things she would want to say to her about what's going on but she just doesn't do that and then she is uh, receives an invitation from Inanna, who's one of the gods that was mentioned but not seen in the previous volume. Right, and that's the image that you see on the cover. Yeah, he looks like um, Law, uh, Shatterstar from X-Force crossed with Prince. Right, I was going to say, he sort of had this very rave kind of party But we see, we see the rave god later in this volume. Right. And he's a very different thing. Yeah, he kind of really has this sort of like 80s new wave slash glam rock kind of very um, graphic colors, very techno looking outfit. I mean, he has like a full trench coat that's like kind of very Duran Duran-ish. It's like purple and it has like leopard uh, or zebra accents and he's got, you know, like a a really high turtleneck that's really blousey and these sort of yeah. um, boots that look like the kind that people wore in the 80s that look like wrestling boots. Yeah, and then they also have... It's like Tiger Stripe, I think. is the Tiger. Um, and, but he like literally has the Shatterstar-like starburst tattoo uh-huh. around his eye like he's a 90s X-Men character. Exactly. I think it's definitely like the 80s seen through the like lens of the... Mid nineties to late nineties, and so we had they had mentioned Inanna a couple times in the previous volume, and the, like the, I think what we learned was there was some indication that he had a relationship with Ball that was ruined by Lucifer, which is confirmed in this volume. Right, right. And then the other thing is that unlike the other gods who operate like um, like rock stars and pop stars. Nana has, like, residencies, like a performance artist. Right. Yeah. And that's what the invitation is, is to go to the residency and to meet them and to sort of get a better understanding of what that god is about. So they meet up at the... Well, they know. They, the invitation is to meet at the... Uh, at the at Lucifer's grave. Right. And uh, Laura shows up and Nana reveals that they had met before he was awakened to his divinity before the recurrence at like an academic seminar about the recurrence which is there's two there's two things going on here there later on there's a festival 
that's kind of like a conference. I don't know why all comic books have to have an episode where they have like a conference, but they have like a conference. <laughs> it's not all comics. It's just the ones that we read. <laughs> right. So there's the conference that's called... Ragnarok. No, Ragnarok is the music festival. No, no, but before, it used to be a conference. So that's the thing. The place where they met was the previous Ragnarok, which because there were no gods around, was essentially like an academic conference with people giving like speeches and panels. And now it's sort of a combination of a music festival, except not music, like a god performance festival, and a comic convention. Right. So then that's where we meet another character who becomes a recurring character, David Blake, who mm-hmm. is a Pantheon scholar. And his name is a obvious reference to um, Thor's human identity. Yeah. Which I think is maybe a hint that we should keep an eye on this guy, considering some stuff that happens to other characters in the course of this volume. Right. And he kind of talks dismissively to Lara and to the human who later becomes Inanna. Yeah. He's like, he's, yeah, he's an old, he's a guy that gives like, oh, millennials, or he says that this generation doesn't deserve a pantheon, and he's very dismissive of the other generation, and very protective of his knowledge. I mean, anybody who's operated in fandoms or in academia knows this sort of like old crotchety gatekeeper kind of guy. And I think with the, the, the change that Ragnarok has gone through, kind of... It's interesting because it kind of sets up this thesis that, like, uh, scholarship is just fandom after the thing has died. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting premise because later on when you actually see Ragnarok, you see, like, it's almost like it's a combination of, like, Burning Man and Coachello and the Comic-Con. Yeah, so definitely that's what's going on. So, like, he, this guy's slagging off the... Uh, the current generation and Laura sort of stands up to him and they have a confrontation and Anana is impressed by that and then later is visited by Ananki and is awakened into his godhood. And the outfit he's wearing then is like sort of the, uh, it's like the Eddie Murphy delirious <laughs> leather suit. It's like if like Eddie Murphy and like... Uh, queen got together and decided to like design a business suit yeah i mean he basically uh teams up with he says like he's got a bad feeling about the lucifer thing and he teams up with her to uh to ferret it out and then he changes into like a han solo outfit no no this is a flashback yes where he go he's this is his detective outfit which is Inspired by Han Solo and maybe Fabio combined, where he like teleports with golden and pink sparkles into the morgue to solve the mystery of who attacked Lucifer. And he kind of figures it out. It turns out that it's, he thinks it's one of the fans. Yeah. That so they were, they were presenting themselves as Christian fundamentalist terrorists. And he says they weren't Christians. They weren't fanatics. They were fans. And then he tells... He sort of disappears, but he tells Laura to that he'll stay in touch and asks her to be careful. Yeah, and that's when Laura decides, walking home, that she's going to re-enter. She's sort of been isolating herself from society. And she goes on social media and she posts something saying that she's ready to come back to society. And her phone instantly blows up with likes and responses and all these different things well she specifically says that she wants to do some cons and we'll speak 
if anyone will have her. So it's not just that she's re-entering society, but she's re-entering like a, a position of prominence uh, within the pantheon. The pantheon. Yeah. So, I mean, there's not a lot of action in the first issue, but we do meet some really important characters. Inanna, David Blake, and then we start to see um, Laura get back into the fandom culture that she was sort of isolating herself from. It's also the first time we see someone who, which will be important later in this volume, Inanna's ascension is like someone who is connected to the idea of the Pantheon before they become a part of the Pantheon. Which we see repeated three more times in this volume. Yeah. Which I don't know what that means, but I guess it's important. Um, yeah, and then also now Laura has another ally, because previously it had just been Cassandra, who she has a particularly prickly relationship with. Who is your favorite god in the Pantheon so far? Anana. Anana? Yeah. I like Woden. He's just such, like... I like him when he shows up. He is like a monologue, basically. I think in this issue, maybe in the next one, in seven, which makes him. I don't know if it makes me like him, but it makes him pretty. It makes him pretty interesting, like compared to a lot of the other gods who, like the specific way he's he is he uh like interacts with his own divinity is interesting. I like the aspect of him. I like this version of Woden, this sort of high tech kind of warrior with the mask and the sort of really like graphical looking outfit. I like that sort of depiction of like Norse mythology where it it's so far into the past that he is like now into the future. Yeah, it's also like I appreciate that it's not the lazy option, which is to like, oh, it's a Norse god. So he's like a death metal guy. Exactly. Like, it's like, oh, but he's like Daft Punk. Mm-hmm. But I also like, so we never, we haven't seen his face. Well, we'll get to it. We'll talk about this yeah. when we get to his speech. I like this full page depiction of Woden that starts seven because in the sort of, the highlights of his metallic mask, you can see there's some runes and he sort of. Kind of like a nod and with the like back panels where it looks like, you know, they're kind of like runes as well. It's like a nod to like the historic version. Yeah, I think like that's a cool like aesthetic thing of like marrying runes with like Tron lines, which like they're not dissimilar. It's like hard angles and like straight clear lines. Like you can easily blend those things together. And I, I dig that they did that. So seven starts with something called the Fantheon, which is the kind of like fan Oh, okay. This is what I was, I had combined this with Ragnarok in my head. Yeah. This is like a, a, a different thing. Right. This is like the conference, the Comic-Con, the sort of academic portion of the like fandom. This is where the scholars meet and there's some interaction with the fans, but it's not like... A full-on god festival like Ragnarok is. Yeah. So then Laura goes there. We get, like, a map of the place, which is cool. I like when, you know, like, comics do this. Like, insert these sort of, like, um... You know, when they happen with video games, like, if you buy, like, a video game that has, like, a real physical map or whatever, they call them feelies. It's kind of, like, too... Like, like a nod to a Comic-Con because, like... 
when we would go to the comic cons like in philadelphia we would go to wizard world every year when especially when nate was younger i would take him Mm. and you always started the like journey of like getting into comic con by like being funneled through where you got your bag and you got your physical map and then like there would be like all these sort of like little corners where people would like crouch in there and look over their map and plan out because like in the early times that we would go, it was before the maps were all digital. Yeah. So you wouldn't know, like, where the Marvel, you know, stand would be or what number, which comic books, you know, authors where you wanted to get your signature. So you would have to, like, spend some time in the very beginning of your visit to the Comic-Con going over the map and circling where you wanted to go. And this is exactly, like, what that's like. So, to add context, because I didn't mention at the start of the podcast, uh, Andrea is my mom. So, she's like, when he, especially when Nate was younger, I would take him. That's what's going on there. Yes. I, as a mom, would take my son, who was, yeah. who was, was a young. A literal child. Right. And at the time, was still into Pokemon. Mm. So, we would go and we would... You get your bag at the Wizard World in Philadelphia, which is where we live, mm. and it would have your map, and it would have your uh, show day special cover, and then your other free things that were included in your gift bag that you would get. My favorite thing about this map is the themed names of the concession stands, because it's God, I Need a Coffee, Hamaterasu Sandwiches, Ball You Can Eat Buffet, Anana and Outburger, Amateragu, Ragu, Amateragu Italian, Bapo Meat, and the Val Cakery. <laughs> I would definitely go to the Val Cakery, especially if it was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you were tired. Yeah. I'm trying to see if there's anything. There's a Tranquil Meditation and Trees. Uh... Yeah, and then there's and something... And there's like notes that... that... Uh, Laura has written on there. Yeah, it's a fun map, and it also has like the little icons. It's just like the map you get at the Comic Con. Yeah, which cool. I, I think everyone can relate to. And then she shows up at the Pantheon, and I mean, like immediately runs into uh, Cassandra, who was there with David Blake. Because I guess they're in some kind of like green room for people who are going to be on panels yeah they're all i guess they're all going to be i don't know if cassandra is going to be on a panel or if she's just interviewing people no i think she will be because she has like the past but yeah there's they're in the oh it's the press lounge there's literally a little little information kind of on yeah so she she starts talking with laura and then david blake chimes in and they start having a conversation no that doesn't that doesn't happen yet they're talking and she reveals that she's still looking into the lucifer thing that she has a source that she can't reveal to Cassandra, is Anana, that tell that has, has hinted to her that uh, the the assassins were fans, and then this is where Cassandra uh, tells us about the Prometheus myth. Right. So, what is the Prometheus? So we've talked. Gambit? Of- it's called the Prometheus Gambit, right? Yes, the Prometheus <laughs> Gambit, which sounds like a, uh, a space opera book I would read. Uh, but the Prometheus Gambit is, well, I mean, it's like Prometheus is all fire from the gods. The idea is that, um, if you, that people can, if you go to a god and kill them, and I guess also say Prometheus, it's unclear if that's, I guess nobody knows, because nobody knows if it works or not. But supposedly you say Prometheus and you kill a god and you get to steal their godhood. Which comes important because a lot of people are 
covetous of the God powers. We start to see that there's a lot of jealous people who want, and I mean, Laura also wants God powers, but she doesn't seem like she wants to kill a God to get those powers. Yeah. And then, uh, Cassandra's old intern, who was the one who ratted them out the ball, shows up and starts fighting with them. And then they split to go to their panels. Yeah. So it just sort of sets the precedent. So she's at the panel. I guess Laura's on a panel about people who have had relationships with the gods. Mm-hmm. And it's like, she's there. And then this woman, Broomhilda, is there who had a previous relationship with Woden. She was one of the Valkyries. Valkyries. And I don't know who the other... Yeah. I don't think it matters who the other people are because Brunhilde takes over the entire panel and starts talking shit about Woden, who shows up and... Yeah, I like this part. This kind of... This is very, like, real housewives drama. You like He, like, hijacks the panel by showing up in his full outfit and then he has a... A newly designed, even more high-tech Valkyrie outfit that he will give to Broomhild if she walks back on the trash that she was talking. Yeah, he, he basically makes her prostrate herself before him. And then when she does, instead of giving her the outfit, it, he makes it explode in, like, pixelated pink flames. And then he walks away and says, you were always my favorite, but you blew it. Yeah. So that's sort of, yeah. So she she burned her bridges with Woden. Yeah, and then he's a big dick about and it. he's a big dick about it. Yeah, and then Laura goes back into the green room and she's like fighting with a guy who wants to buy her phone. And Ball is there. And then Woden shows up. And like preemptively <laughs> brushes her off and is like, no, you don't have what it takes to be a Valkyrie. Not that she was even asking. Because <laughs> he's a huge asshole. He definitely is. And then she calls him out for, uh... Having a type and being, like, a male chauvinist, pretty much. Yeah. Well, he's into tall Asians, apparently, specifically. And he he defends himself by saying that he's working on an aesthetic and it's complicated and she wouldn't understand. That sounds like something, like, a douchebag would say. Yeah. And then she tries to talk to him about the Brunhilde thing. And... He talks more shit on her and uh, defends his, like, very public airing out of their dirty laundry. What were you going to say? How many Valkyries does he have? He has two now. Yeah. Does he usually have two or three? I think he's... I think he usually has three, but he currently has two. And then Broomhild shows up. She yells Prometheus and she tries to shoot him. So she obviously knows about the Prometheus gambit. Yeah, but then before that, he said he explains that like he can. He says, "I make other people stars. I get nothing." You know what happens when I try to give myself powers? Clue: Now I wear this, referencing the helmet. So he's got like a Doctor Doom thing going on. So he explains that basically he doesn't have any like personal power except the ability to bestow power on other people, which is weird because that doesn't really seem like an Odin thing. But I'm wondering if maybe the idea is, like, I, I'm thinking of two thing, options. One is, like, he's not actually Odin. He's, he's something else under the helmet. And two is, he's, like, too... Like, Odin's 
power comes from self-sacrifice, right? Like, the most famous thing about Odin is that he, like, he gave up his eye and hung under the world tree. And that's, like, how he gained the wisdom that, like, he's known for. So it's like, is he an Odin that's too, like, unwilling to sacrifice? So that's why he doesn't have any personal power because he's still, like, holding on to his self-image. I don't know because he he is also either the father or the enabler of a lot of more powerful gods that's true, than himself. Yeah. I mean, his thing with, like, Freya and Thor and Loki is the things that he allows them to do make them become powerful. So maybe that's what it's implying. But yeah, so... But he's not especially filled with wisdom. He's not especially kind. He's not especially um, willing to sacrifice himself in any way. And then, but he, like, he also says that he would slop Lucy's few months for my two years. Like, so he kind of, he's very, also very self-loathing. Yes, yes. He's very complicated, apparently. Even though he probably smells a lot like Ace Body, Axe Body Spray or whatever. Yeah. And then Brunhilde shows up and tries to Prometheus him. And Minerva, who's like the little girl who won, like, uses a force blast to smash her against a wall. And then she's upset, and then Ball is comforting her. Yeah. Because she's kind of, she's young and innocent and she was just trying to help Woden and she ends up doing this and it sort of destroys her. But my favorite part of this issue is like when he like manifests this giant rainbow cloud and he like yells, by frost time. And like he just leaves. Yeah. But he also says the Prometheus thing is a myth and he says that if it were true, I'd be, I'd kill, he says, if it was true, I'd be killing gods myself. I killed to be any of them rather than me. Yeah, and then he just like he's like peace out, and then he just goes into his rainbow portal with his Valkyries and just leaves. Yeah, and then he says we're done, and then that's the end of that. And so there's this running gag through the uh, throughout the issue that people keep trying to give Laura flyers, and she doesn't want them. Yeah, and she's yelling at a dude, "I don't want a flyer." When a voice from the underground says, "Do you want a balloon?" <laughs> yes. And it is Baphomet. See, He's I Baphomet. thought you would say Baphomet was your favorite. And then I had, like Baphomet a lot. Then he has a nickname that's just Baph. Yeah. So, yeah, he's like hanging out in the downstairs of some building trying to lure Laura to get, his, to get her attention. Yeah. So he wants to invite her to a party with him in the Morrigan. Yeah. And so they, I mean, they go downstairs, and they there's this long winding course like through various basements and sub basements to get to the underground, where the Morgan's having a concert of some sort. Yeah, she's doing karaoke, and she's very angry, and she's in the babbed persona, which is like the the violent, uh, vengeful one. Yes. Yeah, so he. Th- so Baphomet tries to lure Lara to the party with the promise of some Jack Daniels, which he shows her in his coat like he's even more sleazy. So I feel bad for him because he's kind of like, he's like a god of the dead and he's supposed to be a badass, but he seems like he's like kind of bumbling along. He doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing and he seems pretty lonely. Uh, he's... So, like, they get down there, and he's like, I lied. <laughs> Morgan didn't want to see you. Uh, and then he's like, 
sort of clumsily expresses condolences for Lucifer and then asks Laura what she's like. And then she kind of like bubbles over and there's, it's, I like the way they, they like stage this where it's just this big text box with like her explaining what she said over her face. Yes. And then she tries to leave. And then she finally takes a pamphlet, a flyer after all the time of not, and it turns out to be a flyer inviting them to Dionysus, who's having a party. Yeah, and it's she accepts the flyer from the Morrigan. Right, and then the, he's the flyer says Dionysus, the dance floor that walks like a man, which I think is pretty great. Yeah, I mean that's another I, that's another uh, cl- classic comic reference, I think. Because there's, I can't remember what it is, but it's some kind of monster comic that's like, there's something that walks like a man. That's like a like a recurring thing. Yeah, and then this is the god that you said is the rave-inspired god. Yeah. And then we've heard that Dionysus existed in the first volume, but we did not see. I don't know if he did, because she, what we learn is that he's one of the people that's at the, that's in the underground when Baphomet shows up and does his, like, fake. Like, oh, the Morrigan's dead, here's her, her head thing. Oh, okay. So he at some point became Dionysus off-panel between that and now. And he's another fan who becomes a god. Yeah, so she... Laura shows up to the thing with Anana, but Anana splits to go do something at his residency. See, this is the part that confused me, because... Anana's residency were kind of like rave parties that last for days. And once people got in there, they didn't know what time it was. But then you meet Dionysus, and if you touch him, he he infects you with some kind of mind-altering drug. Mm-hmm. And then you don't know how long you've been in this rave party. Yeah, I guess it's just there's similarities between them. Yeah. But I kind of like his like aesthetic where he's like a bald-headed man... And then he has the, like, crown of, like, olive leaves tattooed on his head. Yeah, and his, like, eyes are completely black. But he's got the least impressive outfit out of any of the gods because he's just wearing a t-shirt and jeans. Yes. Yeah, you would think that, like, of all, like... But then Inanna shows up and he's wearing, like, a prince outfit. Like, a white leather and, like, leopard, like, pantsuit. Yeah, so then she touches him, and we get this really trippy sequence of her partying that is this recurring motif of counting one, two, three, four, which was a thing that was recurring in the previous volume, of people counting down before doing, or counting to four before right. doing stuff. So it's like the numbers are some kind of expression of God power. I talked about before how it's like a countdown, like the start of a song. Yeah, and each time they do the countdown, the artwork gets more and more abstract. As the party moves on and you see more characters, you see like Sakamet is there and Cassandra shows up and Woden shows up. And then like they start like having conversations and interacting with each other. And then you realize that they're all sort of having this collective like hypnotic like... They're in, like, a fugue state. I don't yeah. know, like, a collective hallucination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is also, like, she has a conversation... Well, Laura has a conversation with... Oh, also, her eyes turn black like Dionysus's eyes uh, during this, which is, like, the first hint that, like... Yeah, he's, like, he's, sharing. He's yeah. either sharing his power 
or he's also getting... under the influence of his own power. He's getting high on his own supply. Yeah. Uh, they also, this is where they explicitly talk about, like, rave culture. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, my shirt is, like, vintage. And, and Laura was like, oh, my, her mom was, like, into raves, but her dad's, like, a square. But he did play guitar in his in the 90s, but he didn't get anywhere. I think also it's interesting to note for the future is that Laura's wearing, like, just jeans and a t-shirt, but she has this really detailed necklace on that. As the story moves through, the necklace, like, starts to glow and transform a little bit. Yeah, it's sort of, it's like, um, I mean, it's two-dimensional, but it kind of, like, calls to mind, like, a bismuth. Like, it's sort of this, like, curly Q, like, right angles, fractally thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she runs into Cassandra at the rave, uh, who tries to get her back on track because she's, like, it's totally high. Yeah, and then it's, like... There's lots of rainbow colors, like soft neons, fuzzy backgrounds. And then at some point, she runs into Baphomet, and then it completely changes. It's back to, like, dark, black, brown. And then he's there, like, he's not affected by a Dionysus or anything that's going on at the rave. Cassandra also isn't affected. Her eyes are normal, and she at one point, she's just in the background yelling... There's no music, I repeat, no music. What are you all fucking dancing to? And then Odin is watching her, and he, he is early he says, I don't want a dance. Then there's the panel of Cassandra yelling, and then a panel of Odin and he says, I watch. So I don't know what's going on there. But considering what happens to Cassandra later, this might be a significant moment. Yes, definitely. Yeah, she runs into Sakmet, she runs into Amaterasu, who is like um, reveals that she's straight, I guess, is the significance of that panel. And then there's a weird panel where Minerva's there. She's not there. She's sitting on a couch somewhere. I guess it's just... Uh, hold on. So wait, so it's... it's What is the sequence of this party? She's dancing with Dionysus and they have the conversation. He leaves to go keep the party going. She runs into Cassandra, tries to get her back on track. There's the I don't dance, I watch, what are you dancing to? She runs into Sakmet, she runs into Amaterasu. Then Cassandra and Woden have a conversation where he says, I really like the way this is written. It's such like a douchey way to say this. So Cassandra, you know what your dream job is? And she says, ending this conversation, and he goes, wrong, listen. And then we can't hear what they say to each other. And then she starts dancing. Yeah. And then the party ends, basically, the party ends and then... It's not that Baphomet isn't affected. It's that the party ends and then she starts talking to him. Right. Or then Laura starts talking to him. And then she asks him, like, hey, did, like, anything uh, special happen before you became Baphomet? Like, trying to get, like, a feel on, like, if she's going to become a god or what the process is when people become gods. And he reveals that he met the Morrigan before he became Baphomet. Yeah, it's kind of like there's some gods that are connected to each other based on either by their previous relationships or by their, like, connecting and the type of, like, god mythology mm. that they come from. Like, Woden and Minerva are kind of linked together. Yeah. And, like, Baphomet is, like, linked to the Morgan and they're both sort of, like, underground dwelling, like... Well, I think I talked about this in the previous one, but I think... The gods are split. The gods in the Pantheon, or at least in this occurrence, are split into celestial, like, sky gods, and chthonic, 
like underworld gods. So like Woden, Minerva, Ball, Sekhmet, they're all celestial gods. Dionysus is a weird one because I don't know where he fits in. He's not a sky god or an underworld god. But Baphomet, Morrigan, Lucifer, they're all underworld gods. Yeah, and then finally, like, there's this sort of panel where it has all the gods and they're completely, like, colorful in different ways. And then there's a one of... Oh, I was wrong. That's not the end of the part. You're right. He does show up and bring the mood down. Yeah, and then all the gods are, like, kind of, like, very neon looking. And then Cassandra was like, oh, what'd she say? Huh? And then they start, like, saying, go faster, faster, faster. And then finally... Laura says that's enough and she runs out the door and then the whole party is over. And Dionysus is outside and they start talking and she says something like, you're lucky you got a, you're a god that makes people happy. And then he says like, you don't get it. Like, I'm not happy myself. Well, no, he, he, he says, uh, yeah, but he says he hasn't been alone in, he says, I haven't been alone in my head for two months. Plus I don't sleep. But it's like, his thing drops, and we see his eyes, and they're all bloodshot. But it's like, I think in the conversation, he is not trying to frame it to her like that's a bad thing. I think he at least wants her to think that he thinks that's a good thing. Yeah. But it's like, the mask falls for a second. But the the conversation, going back to the conversation she has with Baphomet, the important thing that happens there is he reveals that in the previous volume, when the Morrigan gave her and Baphomet an alibi for... The killing of the judge, the framing of Lucifer, she lied. Right. And he doesn't understand that. So I don't know, is is Baphomet not guilty, but the Morgan thought he was? And she just alibied him on the chance that he was guilty? I mean, I wonder, maybe, I'm also wondering if maybe the idea is like, we saw what happened with Lucifer um, when she was imprisoned and, like, accused, and it ended with, like, this rampage and then death and baphomet is like lucifer but stupider so maybe he would have just if he was suspected he would have like gone off and done something really dumb and destructive which he does do later in this volume i don't know she was projecting him in some way yeah well that yeah and it's not really clear what their relationship is except that they spend a lot of time together So the issue ends with Lara on the night bus going home, tweeting about how she hates the night bus. And then in a very dramatic fashion, Ball shows up and stops the bus in this like, you know, kind of like super fast sports car and picks her up and takes her home for the night. Well, she says, who's home? And he says, that's entirely your call. And we don't actually see what happens. But it's kind of implied that she goes home with him because she's just like into him. She was into him in the first yeah. volume and she assumingly is still into him. I mean, I think at one point in her like internal monologue, she calls him her crush. Right. In this volume. And he does look super like intense in this sort of, you know, very couture suit in the giant necklace with the lightning bolt. And then he comes out of like this car that could be like a DeLorean and there's like pink lightning all around Mm -hmm. and he's kind of like making a grand gesture to pick her up yeah but see this is the thing i have about with laura i don't know if you're supposed to like feel sympathetic and and relate to her but she's kind of like a shitty like person 
What do you mean? Like she's like a fan who's like seeking fame for herself and she's like going out of her way to try to connect the gods to make some kind of like something for herself and she wants to be a god and then she's sort of like a hanger on for the gods and now she's having a relationship with Ball Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like she's still like upset that she didn't get what she thought she was going to get from Lucifer. Yeah, but like, I mean, if you take it like metaphorically and you think like it's about like art, right? Like, I think that's the interesting thing about her not being able to get the fire to work again is if it's like art and it's like the spark of inspiration, like she gets it the one time and then she's like, what the fuck did I do to like, I wrote a good song or I wrote a good story or whatever. And now every time I sit down to make something, it's fucking bullshit. Like, how do I get that to work? And the idea of like, I don't know, maybe if I get in proximity of people who I think are good at this, it'll make me better at it is like a pretty common thought that people have. I feel like that's fairly sympathetic. I guess so. But in my view, it's kind of like, she is like seeking celebrity by being around celebrities. I guess. And these celebrities don't really owe her anything. No. Like she had like a two day relationship with Lucifer and like she's still milking that. But she's not though, right? Like she goes to the convention and stuff not because she wants to be famous but because it's part of the investigation. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. So, issue nine is when the, like, sort of the plot heats up. Yeah. That this is sort of, like, it opens with just a close-up view of Anaki and her face and her weird mask that she's always wearing. Yeah, it's like a veil sort of thing. Well, the issue starts with Anika comforting Minerva. Yeah, yeah. Who is still upset about her interaction with Broomhild. Yeah, and then, okay, so then, then Baphomet shows up and he, he's like, hey, uh, the Morgan lied and gave me an alibi for the judge. And then he sort of antagonizes uh, Minerva, who's very upset about the possibility of dying, which, like, clearly gets to him. He starts, like, crying about the fact that he's gonna die, I guess. Yeah, and I think this is when it starts to be revealed that he... He's having difficulty coming to grips with sort of the finality of his existence because he is a god. He seems like he's one of the gods that didn't want what happened to him. No, he doesn't want to die. That's his like main motivation is he's upset about the fact that he's going to die in two years. And then she tells, Anaki tells him, hey, the Prometheus Gambit doesn't work for mortals, but it'll work if a death god does it. Right. Lo and behold... Hint, hint, he's a death god. Yeah. And she does, like, this very manipulative thing where she's like, oh, I didn't didn't say this in front of Minerva because she's a child and, you know, her moral compass isn't developed, but you know what you're doing, Baphomet. Yeah, and that's why I think you realize that, like, first of all, Baphomet is being manipulated. And Anaki is using these gods in this current pantheon as her cat's paw. So we know now that Anaki has... Some kind of secret plan that she herself is working on and using the different gods to get her whatever agenda she has to push that. Yeah. Well, and then she, like, tells him, like, hey, if you kill a god, I'm going to kill you. If you, if a god is murdered, I will hunt you down. And then he puts it together that she killed Lucifer. Right. But that would, I mean, so she, we also learn a little bit about her backstory, which we kind of hinted that 
we could figure out. She's a protector of the Pantheon, and she is the only recurring member of the Pantheon that exists concurrently all through the years. Cassandra shows up and they have, like, an interview. Right. Before that, she shoots Baphomet across the room uh, because he's gonna... Because uh, Cassandra, like, provokes him and he's, like, gonna shoot her with fire or something. Like he did to the police officer, I guess. Right. Which he's still wanted for. And then Anarchy blasts him across the room. And they have their... And he pretty much sulks away at this point. Yeah. So then Cassandra and Anarchy have their interview... And she basically explains is, like, um, the reason that the cycle of gods exists, at least in her telling, is to push humanity forward. Like, that's what I was talking about. She referenced earlier with the Lucifer thing about, like, the light of inspiration. The idea is, like, the gods recur on Earth. They inspire humanity forward to create new things and to explore and to make art and culture and stuff. And then they go away. And they come back, and they do that over and over again. And sometimes, and they struggle against this darkness, which is unclear if it's, like, a literal, like, enemy they have to fight, or if it's just an abstract concept. But when they fail, that's essentially when, like, a dark age happens. And when they succeed against the darkness, that's when, like, a golden age happens, essentially. And in order to keep things moving on track after their first major defeat... Which, had it not happened, we would have gotten to the moon before... We would have gotten to Mars before ancient Greece. Uh, she gives up her divinity to stay on Earth as this immortal to guide the Pantheon. And then she also reveals that she was the inspiration for the White Goddess. Which is this, like... Um, do you know what that is? Yeah, it's like a poetic mythology. Yeah, it's like, but it's also literally about, like... the inspiration thing so it ties back into the, all of that stuff right and it was written by robert graves yeah who was a british poet and author and i think his most famous work or the one that i know him best for is i claudius uh yeah wait is that the same guy mm-hmm. so i mean i mean that's basically the the extent of their their inter- oh no and then it ends with a totally wild reveal out of left field yeah but you know what i kind of i was like i haven't read this so i didn't know this was going to happen so every so i'm reading this fresh for the first time and i'm it's almost like (gasps) uh it's revealed that cassandra and her two assistants are actually part of the pantheon and they get transformed during the interview yeah and apparently she did not know this and she was very shocked to find herself being transformed into what is it? Ur- Urdur? Yeah, they're the Norns. The Norns. Which, which are, are like the... the Fates, but Norse, right. basically. Yeah. Um, so that so there's a couple things that are, are clear here, right? So it's like it wasn't it wasn't racist. It wasn't aesthetic. Right? What? Woden being into tall Asians. Cause he's looking for her. Yeah, I guess so. Like that's what all the Valkyries are like poor reflections of cassandra because that's who he was looking for yeah and that kind of links too to the same thing where there are certain gods that have a pre pre pre-existing connection yeah so and i also think i mean if you look back there's kind of like there was some signs that this might happen because she always had two assistants and yeah she was she's a news reporter so she's always trying to tell people what's going on and then, like, as the Norn, they have to tell people 
about their own mortality, which I think is hard for Cassandra. Mm-hmm. But they sort of get this black and white, like, very dramatic sort of outfits, you know, with their faces painted and they're wearing capes and leather pants and... Yeah. Well, also before uh, their the transformation... Um... Cassandra asks Ananki, like, why don't I feel anything? Like, when I go to these god things and I see all these people, like, what's wrong with me? Right, and and you're supposed to believe in the first part of this and then the first volume that Cassandra doesn't feel or isn't connected to the pantheon because she's trying to be objective. Mm -hmm. But I guess the truth is, is that because she's technically one of the pantheon anyway. Yeah. So this makes Laura upset when she finds out about this because she thought she was going to be the twelfth god revealed. And then Anaki is like, "Hey, you're gonna have to. You need to take the stage at uh, Ragnarok." Ragnarok. And then Baphomet is watching from the background, and he's like, "Yeah, I could probably kill her because he's <laughs> like scared to kill any of the other gods." Yeah, he's like, "Oh, I think it would be fine killing her because she sucks. He doesn't like her." Yeah, so he's definitely committed to himself now. He's going to kill one of the gods because. He wants to extend his time on Earth. Yeah. But now, do they all expire at the same time, or do they get two years from the time they... I thought they expired at the same time, but it seems like this volume is saying that they get two years from the point where they appear. So if you're an early manifestation, you have less time than... Yeah. So Lara has a meltdown because she thought she was... She thought with the little miracle that she performed with the clicking of her finger that she, it was proof that she was going to be one of the pantheons. And at this point, we're only to believe that there can only be 12 gods. Yeah, I mean, that's the rule we were given. There's 12 things on the thing. I mean, one of them is already dead, so well, I don't know that's what I was going to say. It. Like, is it like 12 at any given time or 12 all the time? And then if one dies... There's still only 12. Unclear. Because technically Lucifer's dead, so even though the Norn is the 12th reveal, it's technically only 11 living gods. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So, so this issue ends with Lara crying because she's not a god. Yeah. And then the cover of the next issue is Baphomet with blood all over his face. He's got the crimson mask like he's wrestling in the South in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I like his, like, yellow kind of, like, goat's eyes, too, I guess. Really I leaning into like, the... Well, the goat's eyes would be the other way. Yeah, but be... but I mean, it's, like, the color and yeah. the, the yellow and the black. Maybe that's a hint at something. Yes. Because, oh, that we didn't talk about it, but at the Pantheon, Cassandra brings up the thing that I brought up in the previous volume, which is there is no Baphomet. Baphomet was created to smear the Knights Templar and then worked backwards into like more modern occultism by people like Aleister Crowley but there's no like historical cult of Baphomet well it's kind of like also where you realize that Anake is just doing what she wants well I think especially in this I think in this issue or the next one is where it becomes really clear that like she's like there's no she's full Outback Steakhouse so there's no rules just right she has some kind of vested interest in gods dying it feels like and i don't know what that means if she gets power from them maybe the prometheus thing is true but it works for her 
and by the gods dying, she's bit by bit stealing back her divinity. So this epi- this issue, issue ten, is that Ragnarok issue. Yeah. So this is the next issue that I was talking about. So then, Inanna shows up and wants to take Lara on a date to Ragnarok, and then they sort of fly in there. And you see, like, sort of this overview of this giant meadow. Mm-hmm. And it has, like, all these pylons, which are one... Each one of the gods has this giant pylon that's almost like Stonehenge. And then you can't see all of it, but you see these sort of... The paths that are in the meadow where the concert is taking it's, place. It's Hyde Park. Yeah. The, these, like, markers are kind of on some kind of giant symbol and then the pylons are on top of it and then all the people are there and they're generating a huge amount of like energy so then they show up and they meet ball and that's when you realize that there's this sort of previous relationship where ball and inanna were together and then lucifer came in and they broke up uh yeah and then ball reveals that uh Cassandra has now, or Erder, or whatever, has figured out who killed Lucifer. Or right. who, yeah, wait, who, who tried to kill him. So, we still don't know who, I mean, we know it's a non-key, presumably. But we still don't know, but, like, it hasn't been officially revealed who framed Lucifer. But we know who the assassins in the beginning, who, like, whose deaths led to the trial are. Yeah, so then when Lara goes to talk to Erdar specifically because she was Cassandra and she wants to talk with her, she gets to her trailer and David Blake is there and he is now her bodyguard, her assistant. And he's the one who reveals... I don't. I think that's a different guy. There's a guy standing in front of it who's like the bodyguard. I, he come, David Blake comes up from behind. He's just hanging around there. Right, and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm David Blake. Yes, and he reveals that it's... Uh, two fans who were also academic scholars who studied the Pantheon. He also apologizes. Well, he should apologize because he was a little bit of a dick. Yeah, he was a dick. Yeah, so it was like these other dudes who were like in his scene of like the more academic pre-recurrence fandom scholarship thing. And they, I mean, they were basically plotting to do the Prometheus thing. And like it was one dude in particular who... Duncan Ackford, who, like, hoodwinked these other dudes and helping them under the lie that they would also get some aspect of the divinity. And none of that mattered because they all got their heads exploded by Lucifer. Of course. So, so Lara can't really talk to Erdo anymore because now that she's transformed into a god, she doesn't spend the time to talk to Lara. And she is on a mission to do her performance, which is her, she's going to reveal the fates of all the people at the concert or the festival. Yeah. So she gets up on stage, uh, but before she can do anything, uh, Baphomet like is doing like a Wolverine pose on yes. top of his <laughs> pylon, and then tries to kill her with like a burning mic stand, and gets a face full of ravens for his trouble. Yeah, because the Morgan shows up right at that time. And uh, tries to stop him because she knows that it's... Either she knows that the Prometheus gambit is not true or she knows that Anaki is using Baphomet to do something that she wants done. 
But she stops him, and then Anaki is like, hey, you tried to kill a god, I'm gonna kill you. And then the Morgan is like, I stopped him, like, it should be fine. And instead, they uh, they both run away. Yeah, it's kind of like, what's the Morgan's thing? Like she She's in love with Baphomet. Right, but she doesn't connect herself with any of the other Pantheon. Yeah, I don't think she really cares about that. And then she doesn't, like, she's not part of, like, their festivals or anything like that. I mean, I think she, I don't know if she's there. I think she has one of the, the pillar things. I don't know, can you blame her? The other gods are all assholes. Yeah. I mean, so is the one that she likes, but whatever. But yeah, they run away, and then Cassandra does her performance, which is um, an expression of nihilism. Right, and she's upset that they all, all the fans love it, as opposed to being upset or understanding what she's trying to do. They don't get her avant-garde performance that she's doing, and she gets very upset about it, and then Laura has to comfort her. I think of the most consistent relationships that Laura has, I think Cassandra is, like, her most reliable friend. Yeah, so they they reconnect, and then Laura, like, explains, like, you know, I wanted to, I explains the, like, miracle thing and wanting to have Lucifer's power, and then she comes to terms with the fact that she's not going to get it, and, like, is able to genuinely express, uh, you know, pride for, you know, in Cassandra for, like, getting her thing. And it's like, yeah, it's like, your friend gets a record deal or whatever, and you didn't get one, and you're fucking mad about it. And, like, then you see that they're not having a great time, and you sort of, like, reconnect with them as a person. Uh, which is nice. Like, it's a nice sentiment. And she's like, I'm really happy for you. And Cassandra's like, including the dying? And she's like, except for that. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like both of these stories, the story with Baphomet and with the Morrigan and with Cassandra and Lara, they're both sort of, like, friendship stories that mm-hmm. are running concurrent to what's happening in the pantheon and then it cuts to both of them and she's still trying to talk him down from his plan to kill one of the gods and he's now he's even more driven to complete this yeah so this did this happen before hold on no, i want to no, go back happened- to, to when he's about to kill uh no it doesn't okay so this is the first time this happens no he says help me and like a like a devil on his shoulder, like a sha- like a, his own face appears, and like says mean shit to him, and like he does that before he's going to kill Cassandra, and he does it again in this scene. Like he's got some kind of like internal shitty other self that he like calls upon when he needs it. Yeah, his like bad persona. Because I think he's like, he's supposed to be a demon, a devil or whatever, and he's really not. Yeah. So then he decide he puts his, he decides he's going to kill Inanna. But the, also like that reframes all the other times. Right? He shows up and he just says mean shit to people when he like is berating Cass- Cassandra and then she says something bad to him and he's like about to set her on fire. Or when he sets on that, sets that cop on fire, the question is like. Okay, in all those scenes, was he acting genuinely, or did he have the thing over his shoulder and we couldn't see it, and he was just parroting what it was saying to him, and doing what it was telling him to do? Who knows? I guess it's not really revealed if he's got, like, a dual personality or what. And so then it's the end of this issue, and the next issue the cover is a... Chopped off head. Now, is this supposed to be Lucifer? Uh, yes, Who got her head chopped off? 
Because it's super pale. Right. I think it has to be Lister. It's not the other person that it might be. Dun, dun, dun. Or the other two people that it might be. I like, one of the things I like about this series is it's like, they pack all the like cliffhanger right in the last episode and the last the last issue is like nonstop action. So it's kind of like a slow burn the first like four issues, but then when you get to the last issue, it really cranks it up. Yeah. And so like again, getting back to the like, oh, the godhood thing is like art or whatever, like Laura is initially it starts with her being like being moping about like the fact that she can't get it to work. And then resolving yourself to like, well, I'm going to keep trying to do it even if it's never going to work. Like, well, I might as well just keep trying because that's what's important. And then, ta-da, Ananki's in her backyard. Just exactly like Lucifer's story. And just like uh, Inanna, too, as well, who showed up in her backyard. Yeah. And then we cut to Inanna's residency, which is in, like, a church. And it's like all this purple light and stars and stuff. And Baphomet and his mean floating head show up. Who has the same hair, just in a different... The flip is on a different side. Yeah. That's how you know. The flip is on the left side if he's good and on the right side if he's bad. And the head is like, (laughs) you suck. You're worthless. You're already dead. Like, just fucking kill him. He's going to die anyway. It doesn't... None of this matters. All that matters is that we live a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, kill him. And, uh... He does. He does. He. It's weird imagery too. I guess it's sort of like the. It's like a nod to Baphomet's like sort of pseudo religious. Yeah, well, it's like a, he puts a, he crucifies him. There's a cross behind him, uh, behind Inanna, and then Baphomet crucifies him upside down on that cross. Right. And there's lots of sparkles. There's lots of clicking. There's lots of like thrusting hands coming out and the crowd just sort of watches this almost like it's performance art yeah and again anana fights like an x-men character he does the like throws his hand and the things fly out of it like gambit throwing cards it reminds me a little bit of gambit yeah well especially he's got the trench coat again in this part uh and then he gives a speech that's like you, you know i basically like i feel bad for you because you can't be happy. Like, you're trying to get more life, but you weren't happy with what you had already. And, like, I was cool with it. And, like, I enjoyed these six months. So I'm not really afraid to die. And then he blows up the building. and the... He says, you can kill me. You can live a little longer. It doesn't mean you're any more alive. And the whole building explodes. So are we to assume that Baphomet is inside the building? Or I guess we don't know until later on if he yeah. comes back. I mean, I think it's a safe assumption that he killed Anana. I don't think his own explosion. I mean, maybe... They both died, or maybe... Like, the question is, did he cause the explosion or not? If it's an explosion that was triggered by, like, a non or something, they might both be dead. If he but, caused the explosion, then he's probably not dead. But at this point, we know for sure two gods are dead. Yeah, at least two gods, possibly three, are dead. Right. And then Ananki is like, uh... She starts talking to Laura, having a heart-to-heart... You really don't know, like, if she's evil or not at this point. I mean, she's probably evil. She's. The... <laughs> I mean, I feel like she, when she killed Lucifer, it's like, eh, she's, the... so she's at least morally gray. I like how she's sort of, it's almost like an Oprah Winfrey moment. Like, when she reveals that you're in the Pantheon. She's like, you're in the Pantheon! Yeah. And then, like, you know, you just sort of float down some tunnel and you transform into the god that you're meant to be. 
Yeah, and she's, she's, they start having this conversation, and Laura's like, you know, I still want to be in the Pantheon, and I kind of hate myself for that, and I feel stupid. And then Anaki's like, you're not stupid. Uh, I'm so sorry it took so long to find you. And she uh, transforms her into Persephone. Yeah, that's like a weird choice, right? Because Persephone is not one of the gods that's ever been in the Pantheon. I mean, I don't know. We don't know which one, because there's references. The other thing we haven't talked about that came up with the David Blake stuff and with Anonki's uh, interview with Cassandra is that there are lost pantheons. Yes. And then she shows up, she becomes Persephone, and she's got this sort of same thing, this sort of rogue-inspired 1990s-ish X-Men kind of outfit on. And she's wearing the necklace that's sort of slightly modified from the necklace that she was wearing when she went to Dionysus. I feel like it's completely different. Now it's like roses and a skull. But yeah, so like this is another like, you know, Persephone is sort of kind of another underworld god. You know, she's Hades' wife and she can leave the underworld sometimes. So it's like more of that stuff. This is the part that confused me about how many gods there could be. Is she an extra unplanned god that was added to the Pantheon? Or is she a replacement for one of the gods that was murdered? Well, she says, like... Where does it... Let me see if I can find the actual dialogue. She Doesn't she bring up, like, hey, isn't this wrong? Isn't there's too many? Yeah, I thought there were only 12 gods. And then uh, Anagi just brushes it off and says, now we know better. And... um. Laura starts, like, freaking out and having this, like, ecstatic moment where she says, like, her head feels like it's full of plasma. And then, um, Anaki clicks her finger behind her head. Yeah, she she tells her to start singing. So then she decides she wants to start singing. And there's three panels where she starts to sing. And then right when she's in the middle of her song, she just clicks her into oblivion. Well, when we get a black page where she says, I don't remember anything after that, I guess I'm grateful. Implying that, like, this is not the end of this character, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, but then the, we get a, a page, it's like three panels of Anangi covered in blood with her fist clenched, standing over a burning body, and then <laughs> Laura's parents come out and they're like, uh, Yoinks! Hey, what's going on? And she goes, some murders are necessary, others are not, and then she clicks her fingers and explodes their house. Right. And that is the end of this volume. Yeah, and that's kind of like, it's very like sort of cinematic because you see the house explode and then you see Anaki covered in blood just like walking away while the house explodes. And that's like a major cliffhanger. Yeah. Because you don't know if Baphomet is dead, you don't know if Persephone is dead, and then you don't know why Anaki is trying to kill the gods. Yeah. Because it doesn't benefit her to have extended mortality. So it's not it doesn't have anything to do with the Prometheus gambit. So what well, what is her what is her goal? She's already killed now Lucifer probably I mean at least her goal it seems like was to kill both Baphomet and whoever Baphomet tried to kill. And then if she ki- she created then immediately killed Persephone, she's killed four gods out of the pantheon. Yeah. Um so I guess like the options, there's a couple of options of what her motivation could be. So like the thing I said, she doesn't, she has immortality, but she doesn't have divinity. So it could be her trying to get that back. It could be that she wants to trigger a dark age or wants to destroy humanity. I thought maybe she's trying, I don't know if she knows what God she's manifesting when she manifests a God. I don't know if she's trying to bring back a specific God. 
Like she's like killing them and bringing new ones in over and over to get to, the one to, she wants. Maybe that's like a it's randomized that she would. There's one god that she wants. That's yeah, I, I, that could be it. I mean, we have no idea at this point. We know whatever she wants, she has a vested interest in making gods and then killing them. Um, but to what end, we don't know yet. But it also it seems like when they did the first volume and they had the. Flashback to the 1920s pantheon. Mm-hmm. She had. There were certain gods that had been killed. And yeah. It was the same thing when they showed the table. She, there were four skulls on there. Mm-hmm. So she had, or four gods had died in the in that manifestation. Yeah, and then we also have the hanging question of like what it what are the lost pantheons? Because that's the other thing. The guys that tried to kill Lucifer, their cover story, which may or may not be like they even bring this up in this story it's unclear how true this is is that they were in south america researching one of the lost pantheons right so there's also that so there's some so gods can die and can fail and stuff i don't know i think what's really what i really like about this ending though is this does not feel like the ending to volume two this feels like the ending to like the second to last volume (laughs) Yeah, I feel like there's a lot happening right at this time. Like I genuinely... more that more than you would expect for just the second volume. Because I mean, how many volumes left? There are nine volumes in total, so seven left. Yeah, this is like really shooting like a lot of the storyline into like. I have genuinely no idea what's going to happen. Did in you the not next finish seven... this series? This is as far as I read in oh, single issues. Okay. Like honestly, actually, the last thing I remember is. Um, the Dionysus issue. I know I've maybe read the next couple after that, but that's the that was the last point in the story where I'd like definitively remembered what was happening. So this is the first time we're reading a series where we're both reading it. Yeah, this without is yeah. any information. Well, now now that we're past this point, yes. Uh, yeah, I I've been trying to avoid spoilers as best as I can, but yeah, I have no idea where this is going. Well, hopefully they do at some point reveal some of the other pantheons. I mean, we sort I think of... think they're going to have to. We sort of got a nod to realize how long this has been going on when Hanaki was talking to Cassandra and she was telling the story about, like, when you saw this primitive, like, meeting of the pantheon mm. before they had realized that, like, every time it started again, they didn't remember who they were and that sort of set them back in, yeah. like, the creative process. So that's why she was sort of chosen to stay around so that she could get them up to speed quickly. Yeah, she also says, like, their gods are, like, from some sort of, like, realm of light or, like, other dimension or something. And so the question is still open if this is, like... Because what it felt like in the first volume was, like, gods existed and then this is just... This recurrence thing is just how they ended up working in the modern age. But now that we know the recurrence has been happening for a long time... It's like, did the did they are these the gods that they are because they're that's just what they are and they inspired the myths that exist in the real world, or are they like do they have these forms because those gods exist and it's like, oh, that's what humans are inspired by, so we'll look and act like those things. Is Anaki from the is she like a god or yeah, we talked about this a little bit in the previous episode. She is a figure from Greek mythology. She's one of those figures in myth where it's unclear if she's supposed to be like a personified god with like a physical form or if she's just a name for an abstract concept but it's basically like 
her and Kronos are like the forces at the beginning of the universe that like create the world. Oh, okay. That's why she sort of leans very heavily on these Greek gods. Yeah, she's one of the proto-Genoi, or Genoi, I don't know how to say that, but like the primordial gods. It's like her and Kronos, who's like her brother. Uh, she's sort of just like, she's like force and energy and shit like that. Well, that would make sense, because she's sort of working, she's using the gods and their fans as her cat's paws. Yeah. So whatever her her ulterior motive is, we're not sure at this point. It's interesting, though. How did you feel about this issue? I, I like this volume more than the previous one. I like them both, but I mean, I like this one more just because it was like moving so fast and it was so sort of unpredictable, excuse me, so sort of unpredictable. And it left me with this feeling at the end of like, oh, where the fuck is this going? Because like the end of the previous volume, it's surprising when Anaki kills Lucifer, but it, and but it's also like, okay, I get like, it's going to be like a conspiracy thing and they're going to unwrap Laura and Cassandra and all of them are going to like work together. To unravel the conspiracy behind Anaki's actions. But now, like, Cassandra is a god and is, like, sort of detached from her humanity and Laura is dead. And so it's like, I have no no idea how this is going to play out now. How did you feel about it? I liked it, too. I thought it was better than the first one. But I also like that it sort of left this sort of, like, you wanting to find... I mean, you want to know what's going on now because you got more pieces... To the overall mystery, and that makes it more exciting. The first episode, the first volume, was sort of setting up the premise. Yeah, so I kind of that kind of made me more interested because it gave me some ideas, and I kind of thought about what could be happening, and I like that. So, and I think the artwork, I mean, continues to be very avant-garde, very interesting. The whole scene of the Dionysus party is very smart, and the artwork is kind of like really. Like, it's kind of beautiful in a way. The, the depiction of the story and how the gods change within the party. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it's really good. So. I dig the art a lot. Um, yeah, it's also like, I think this is this is the first comic we've read where it's like one consistent artist across multiple volumes. Even across multiple, like, issues. We, we got a lot of, like, Swamp Thing and Sandman where it was like, Every issue in the volume was like a different artist. Yeah, yeah. But I, and I also like this this compiled volume that we're reading. At the end, has like a little section of variant art, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. I mean, it doesn't push the story along, but it sort of gives you a different insight into like the depiction of the gods in different ways. And I think that's really sort of like added value to this experience of reading the comic, which I think is nice. Yeah, I agree. So, so what do we have up for next? What are we up to next? Oh, yeah. Uh, so we're starting a new month, so we're going to go back to novella. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit more recent. It was actually just nominated for a Hugo. We're going to read uh, To Be Taught If Fortunate by Becky Chambers, which is a sci-fi novel about space exploration. Like, pretty, you know... Standard stuff, but I've already started reading it, and I think it's pretty interesting. I'm excited to talk about it. She writes a young adult series, right? I don't. Which I have never read. read anything. Oh, I've never read anything by her. I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if she wrote a young adult series. I have read 
I think one or two of her short stories. But she's, I mean, she's been nominated for a lot of Hugo Awards. She's very popular writer, very... Um, See, I am aware of her mostly as a science fiction writer because uh, she went a long way to a small, angry planet. And I think there's like two sequels maybe to that. And they're, you know, they're all science fiction. And that was like, I haven't read any of those, but I was aware of them. I think it's interesting, too, that her first novel was self-published and then became a huge phenomenon and then was picked up by a mainstream publisher. That's cool. Yeah, so then she went on to write, that was the the one you mentioned, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And then she went on to uh, write two more in the series, and then the series won the 2019 Best Series Hugo. And then this is a standalone novella. Yeah, I mean, that's why I picked it. I didn't want to, like, get us into it. Well, I picked it because I was looking at, I wanted to read something more recent, and I was looking at the Hugo nominees, and that one... Uh, seemed cool and was also available on Hoopla. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Uh, and so then after that, we're going to go back to The Wicked and Divine for Volume 3, which is called Commercial Suicide. Hmm. Uh, oh, we didn't talk about it, but the cover for this volume is literally the, like, access pass lanyard right. for the Pantheon, but, like, it's all pink and sparkling. Which, there's a lot of pink sparkles in this volume because inanna is like her their teleportation device yeah it's like a purple star field sort of thing yeah so uh that's this volume we're gonna read some sci-fi and then we're gonna read the next one and then tune in to the next episode of the week of divine and we'll announce the stuff for the month after that great uh spoiler alert uh, stay tuned bye everyone Thank you.